0: So the first 200000 we never got that. That deal ended up falling apart at the last minute. And my parents came through. They ended up mortgaging their house and giving us $200,000 to purchase through to when we could raise money. I had a lot of faith in the business. In retrospect, there were still very, very many places we could have gone wrong or things could have not gone our way. And so it was incredibly risky. It's hard to sleep at night when, you know, your parents' retirement hinges on your business doing well.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Polsky Center's Where Are They Now podcast. I'm Colin Keeley, and we catch up with founders from Chicago Boost New Venture Challenge on the show. Join us as we dive into their entrepreneurial journeys and get a look at the stories and struggles behind their success. This week, we have Caitlin Smith interviewed by Chris McGowan. Caitlin is the founder and CEO of Simple Mills, a healthy food company that only uses simple whole food ingredients. Shortly after launching her almond flour muffin mix, it became the best-selling muffin mix on Amazon. Now, eight years later, Simple Mills is available in 28,000 stores, does roughly $100 million in annual revenue. Chris McGowan is an early investor and former board member of Simple Mills, and professor of entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth. Without further ado, here's Caitlin Smith and Chris McGowan.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Chris McGowan, and it is my great pleasure today to be coming to you with this podcast, interviewing Caitlin Smith, the founder and CEO and visionary behind Simple Mills.
0: Thank you, excited to be here.
2: All right. So actually, Caitlin, I wanna do, I wanna do one uh, quick thing for a second. You know, I had such a good time getting to know you, being an observer on your board, and Simple Mills was just very good to me. I don't know if I've ever showed you this or not, but um, I'm sitting here in my home office, okay, and no one on the podcast can actually see this. But if I was to zoom out for a second, I have painted my walls Simple Mills yellow.
0: Goodness, that is incredible! <laughs> I love that. I,
1: I thought you that. would like that.
0: Also, good to know that we have extra office space for when we need it.
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: Bet you didn't know it came with that liability. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll be your satellite office on the uh, on the north side in, in Wrigleyville here. So
0: <laughs> excellent, excellent.
2: <laughs> uh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Great. So, Caitlin, can you tell us a little bit about how Simple Mills came to be?
0: Yeah. So, I started Simple Mills probably about nine years ago now. Uh, after cleaning up my diet, taking out a lot of the processed food, a lot of the sugar, and at the time when I when I cleaned up my diet, really just everything changed, and I was really surprised. By what a huge difference our food makes on our bodies. Like I'd grown up thinking like, oh, it affects your your waistline, it affects diabetes, but I didn't think it could affect just your entire body and how you feel on a daily basis. And I really looked around at our food system and said, this is not ideal. And there are a lot of people who are uh, really not getting to live their lives to the fullest as a result of the decisions that we've made with our food system and i started brainstorming how how do i change this how do i help be a part of the solution and i thought about many different things i even thought about getting my masters in public health and ultimately i landed on this idea of starting a natural food company that instead of using a bunch of carbs and sugar uh, made things out of nutrient-dense whole food ingredients—all things that we know we should be eating. So we started out in almond flour baking mixes, you know, just very short, sweet, simple ingredient deck. Uh, we later went into into almond flour crackers. We now have these organic seed crackers, uh, and also crackers made out of uh, vegetables, where vegetables is the number one ingredient. So parsnips, celery root, uh, sweet potato. Uh, and make cookies and soft fake bars too. So we've really kind of expanded over the past over the past nine years. But it really all went back to this vision of how do we help make it easy and delicious for people to eat real food. That's great.
2: And you fell back a little bit on some of the things that you studied uh, in undergrad, didn't you?
0: Yeah. So during undergrad, I was a biology and business double major which I, at the time, didn't know why I was doing that. I just knew that I really loved biology and I really loved business. I had done a couple internships and realized I loved making processes more efficient, which is a weird thing for someone in undergrad to realize, uh, <laughs> 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 but I didn't know where it was going. And I think, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but, uh, I think the thing that I that really is great about that background for building this business is it's both. Like we have to think about how food affects the human body. Like my favorite class in in undergrad was immunology. So much so that I took it both at UNC and then at the National University of Singapore's medical school. Wow. And and so that informs kind of our approach on food. And then also the business component equally important as the CEO of a fast-growing company. Hmm.
2: Excellent. Excellent. It's funny. I I, I wonder if having these interests and passions that that trace back well before the founding of the company had an influence on you.
0: Oh, for sure. I mean, even just to take interest in the first place on how food affects the body, I, I started reading into this area and cleaning up my diet was a sort of intellectual experiment more than anything else. Someone said to me that most of the things that we eat are not food, and it was just this perplexing idea to me. That that makes no sense. Huh. Uh, <laughs> and so out of an experiment, I cleaned up my diet. I was like, well, we'll see if this makes a difference.
2: <laughs> yeah. Did Did you have anyone that was helping you during that that journey of discovery? Anyone that was influencing you or...
0: Yeah. One of my friends had gone paleo and had just really seen the positive effects that it had made on his diet and his friend's diet. So, I decided to give it a try.
2: Excellent. That's great. So, at some point, you decided you've done this research, you've had a meaningful impact on your own health, and you said, I should create a company around this. I mean, what, what was that decision like? Because it, it, it's a leap, right? From, from just cleaning up your own three meals a day to saying, I'm going to do this for others.
0: In retrospect, it was something that I couldn't start fast enough. And it really centered on this, I have to help further what people are eating and what that does for their bodies. And so it weirdly wasn't that much of a question once I came up with it. Like, I remember thinking that if I lost all my money working on this idea, it would still be worth the effort.
2: Wow. Wow. And, and get, give us the context. So take us from graduating from UNC to actually starting the company. You, you, ha- you had some decisions to make and, and, and at least one job in between there, didn't you?
0: Yeah, so graduating from UNC, I went to go work for Deloitte as a management consultant. Uh, so I worked in a whole bunch of different industries and a bunch of different types of projects, which I really liked. I'm I'm an explorer; like I like many different things and I'm curious about many different things. So really enjoyed trying out different industries. And it was while I was at Deloitte that I decided to clean up my diet. I mean, I'd been on the road, I'd been working really long hours, and really wasn't feeling my best. And so it was, it was definitely a part of the decision to clean up my diet. And it was also while I was at Deloitte that I started experimenting with different recipes and seeing if I could make this company work. Initially, I started thinking about building, maybe it's a meal kit company or something that really just facilitates healthier eating. Like maybe it's a sauce that you put on salmon and it's easier to cook salmon, for example.
2: Mm, Yeah. For some people, salmon's easy. Not not for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Salmon is not that easy to make. And a lot of people don't know how to cook. The really interesting thing is during COVID, one of the most popular phone calls that McCormick has received is, what is a teaspoon? (laughs) You're kidding. Which is awesome, by the way, because it means a lot of people are learning to cook. But I think that that helps ground you in understanding where a lot of people start. And that's a barrier to people eating well. And so how do you enable people eating well? So one of the ideas was a sauce. Another one was maybe a bread mix. And that got me going down this route of, okay, what if I made like a focaccia bread mix? Or what if I made a muffin mix that made it really easy to make breakfast? And I started thinking about what could I make it out of and thought about maybe maybe almond flour. There's a lot of brands using almond flour in many different types of products today, but no one was using almond flour back then. It was really a new ingredient. We, I also started thinking about like, okay, how do you find sweeteners that don't have a huge glycemic impact? Which had me investigating coconut sugar, uh, which likewise wasn't even sold in grocery stores at that point.
2: So were you going to like obscure suppliers then for these early ingredients?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and so I just started making muffin mixes really out of this i i realized that that could be a good place to start and one that was i think i had the ability to create myself as i was developing the recipes i decided to call up my local whole foods to understand what the process is to get into stores i really didn't know much about this space i had maybe one friend who was working in another natural food company and so he had a few ideas for me but i really didn't know much of anything at all in this space So I called up my Whole Foods store and asked them. And to my surprise, the buyer answered the phone. So there's a buyer in every Whole Foods store who can make local products decisions. And he said, well, just come down here and talk to me. (laughs) 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 And at the time I was traveling four days a week for really for consulting. And so I was on the road a lot and he said, what about Wednesday? And I said, what about Saturday? (laughs) And (laughs) he said, sure. (laughs) So, uh, so I went down there and I met him and I even still remember how nervous I was going into meeting him because I didn't feel like the recipes were ready yet. I was really just trying to understand the timeline. I was just trying to understand the process and I was really nervous going down and into Whole Foods. I I baked the muffins and I was running late. And
2: oh, so you didn't go into talk. You actually went into you know w- with muffins with samples. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh okay. yeah.
0: Brought him some samples. I brought him a package of mix, and I brought him uh, some baked muffins. And I still remember he said he he looked at the mix. He looked at the muffins, and he said these are made from that. I said yes. (laughs) (laughs) He said these are really good, and we sell a lot of almond flour. And so with that, he helped me set up the items in the Whole Foods South region.
2: How big was that?
0: So the South region is was probably about twenty-seven stores at the time. And it's not that you're getting into every store; it's that your item is available to be sold in those stores. So he was setting it up so that he could sell it in his individual store. Uh, but we would have to sell into the other stores store by store.
2: Okay. Okay. That's still that's still a, a lot of stores for someone who can only squeeze the business into Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, isn't it?
0: Yes, it, it probably is, but I've never been one to, <laughs> to do shy too away. little. <laughs>
2: Uh, so, give us a timeline relative to Booth. Was this, um, h- how how soon was this before you started school with us?
0: This was probably about two months before starting at Booth. I want to say it was July of 2013.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. That's sooner than, than I realized.
0: Yeah. So, I was getting ready to move up to Chicago at that time.
2: So, did you view Booth as like a vehicle or, or a vessel within which you could really incubate this.
0: You're not going to like the answer to this. Uh-
2: <laughs> <laughs> I like it already. Let's hear it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, they were, they were like these two parallel trains. There they were these two trains going down parallel tracks that at some point we're going to meet. And so they were weirdly very independent decisions of each other.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: So, I mean, to give you an idea, it was a full year earlier that I had applied to Booth. I had just started working on the idea of Simple Mills when I applied to Booth. We weren't in any stores. We didn't have any recipes. I didn't even know what products we were going to create. Oh, wow. And so at the point where I started at Booth, we were in probably four stores And so as I went into Booth, I I really gave a lot of thought to the courses that I chose because it was really important to me that I put everything in the business that I could to make it successful. Like it was my first priority. I was not dating. I was not going on trips because I knew that I had to run the business. And every morning while everyone else was hungover, I would sit there and be working on the business and answering emails, <laughs> but it was the number one. It, it was the number one for me. And so, uh, as I selected my courses, I thought about which courses are going to either help me the most in my business or, or let me work on my business while doing the coursework. And so, I thought about classes like cases and entrepreneurship. I uh, I took accounting my first year too. Really. It was a great course at the time because I was doing all of our accounting in QuickBooks. And so I would ask very esoteric questions of, let's just say, theoretically, you have a transaction like this. How would you recognize that? <laughs> I'm sure the professor that I was the most engaged accounting student ever.
2: <laughs> so did you even go on random walk?
0: I did go on random walk. I, I did really want to meet other classmates, but I knew that I had the constraints of the business. So I decided to go on a domestic trip I did the only domestic trip which was Alaska and uh,
1: <laughs> and like, really when second.
0: everybody uh, else was like asleep and and hungover, I was up answering emails, working on the business, getting all my work done for the day uh, before we even did the activities.
2: It's so funny. You're like, wait, I have a good idea. I'm going to do something domestic. And then they send you not to the lower 48, they send you to Alaska. (laughs)
0: All I cared about was cell phone coverage, (laughs) 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 which I'm not sure Alaska is the best for that anyways.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. So at some point you came across the new venture challenge. So I would love to hear a little bit about the new venture challenge from your vantage.
0: Yeah, I I did. And and this for me initially was under the title of Classes That Let You Work on Your Business. Workforce okay. Credit. <laughs> <laughs> Luckiest decision ever, by the way. But that was the original rationale. <laughs> I didn't think we needed to raise any money.
2: And you were post-revenue because you were in four stores, right?
0: Yeah, we were post-revenue. And my Excel model told me we didn't need to raise money ever. <laughs> we <were> good, <laughs> which if you know us now, uh, was a little bit naive. So I was, I was very fortunate to have enrolled in that class.
2: Great. So what do you, what do you remember most about, about the class or the application process or pulling together a team?
0: Yeah, I think there's a few things. I think there was that first moment when I thought about raising money. So over the course of NVC, maybe in the first month I decided, okay, maybe we need $200,000, but that's all the money we'll ever need. Mm. And so I had started to raise it from a, a family friend. And while we were, while we were going through this process, we as a, a team and with the NVC advisors, we started taking a look at the long term PL of the company. And I, I still remember it was, it was Waverly Deutsch who basically looked at our, our plan and said, have you ever seen a large CPG's P&L? Which I had not looked at, which I probably <laughs> should have. Uh, <laughs> but she, in particular, pointed at the marketing line item. And oh, okay. for us, I mean, we we were in four stores when we came into Booth. At this point, we're probably in maybe, if I had to guess, 30 stores. So we're still not a huge brand, but everything that we're doing directly impacts the bottom line or top line. Like We're not spending extraneous money on anything. Uh, pretty much everything is going into, into production or packaging or a trade show was really the largest marketing expense we had.
2: And and her point is that these are marketing intensive business models.
0: Extremely marketing intensive business models. And I didn't have an appreciation for that. I really just thought, you know, the product sells itself. But when you look at the PL of of other CPGs, you really see that even for a brand new product, which they're projecting out at, let's say it's going to do 100 million in its first year, they're going to spend 30 to 50% on marketing for that product of that revenue. So 30 to $50 million. And here I am thinking like, oh yeah, we're just going to spend maybe $5,000 a year on marketing and we'll be great.
2: (laughs) So essentially you're missing about four zeros there.
0: (laughs) Yes. And there are (laughs) are many things like that. I mean, I think trade spend, the team, it's hard to imagine all the things that you have to spend money on until you have to spend money on them. Uh, But I didn't have an appreciation for that. And so we really had this realization that okay, yes, we do need to raise money. And it is significantly more than $200,000.
2: Yeah. Did it also make you think about who you needed to add to your team? Because you've got a great marketing team now. So at some point, at some point, it sunk in.
0: Yeah, we we have a fantastic marketing team. I We have a fantastic team in general. I think it was really later in the business that I really started to appreciate how much the team really influences the business results and how to hire well. That's been a that's been a long learning experience as I'm part sure part of your journey. <laughs> yeah, a long learning journey. Uh when I first started hiring people, I like to believe the best in people. And because of that, I would just see people's strengths. And I didn't do a great job of comparing that against what the business needed. And I also really took people at their word for saying like I'm good at this. And so in my mind, therefore you're good at it versus really testing each of those things throughout the interview process. So we've evolved our interview process a lot over the years. And I think I've gotten a lot better at at pulling that apart. I think the other thing too about hiring is realizing that the, what someone has done is just as important as the how.
1: Mm,
2: got it.
0: So understanding how people operate on a day-to-day basis and how they collaborate with other people really makes a difference inside a inside especially a small organization.
2: Right, so how they get the best out of others, how they kind of force multiply out of outside of just themselves perhaps, build a culture.
0: So I think that the what people have done and what people do in their jobs is just as important as they, how they get it done. And so now, as I'm interviewing and, and considering talent for our team, I I look for a number of a number of traits uh, or skills that they've learned that are not so much like oh I know how to do journal entries for example <laughs> for accounting, uh, but instead it's things like okay professional maturity, ability to deal with ambiguity in a high growth organization critical thinking, ability to question why we're doing things the way that we're doing them uh, or think through what might make sense and how to reprioritize, the ability to have hard conversations and to take feedback well. I think about curiosity and being interested in in investigating other places, other things, uh, passion for the business. We, We don't hire people who aren't passionate about our mission and the impact that we're having. Uh, so all of those things I don't, I didn't know to look for when I was first hiring. The other big thing that I learned from NVC was how to raise money, how to mm. talk to investors, <laughs> 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 which seems kind of obvious, but it's a really critical skill. Yeah, There are many entrepreneurs that don't know how to do that.
2: It, it's not obvious. I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs throughout the year and it's amazing the range of styles where people, you know, uh, you know, come to the conversation and a lot of them are not effective. So I think you've hit on something quite good.
0: Yeah, this understanding from the investor's perspective, what they're thinking about, they're really just trying to understand, one, is this in fact a large opportunity like you say it is? And two, what are the risks to this business? And can you mitigate those for me? And if you can cover those things off, you can be pretty successful. <laughs> yeah,
2: and I'll add a third, which is where are you right now, in the context of that journey? Are you pre-revenue? Are you post-revenue? What are the major milestones to hit? You're right. I mean, those are like the three most important things. And um, yeah, a lot of folks will come in and they'll tell you a half hour story and they'll hit on none of those things.
0: <laughs> exactly. And yeah. And the the faster and easier you can communicate your points, the easier it is going to be for someone else to make an investment decision in you. I, I think the other thing that I've really learned about fundraising, which is a little less NBC related and a little bit more broad, it took me longer to learn this lesson. But fundraising is really a momentum game, as many things are in a startup. Building a startup is very much about how fast you can get from point A to point B. And then you point. To the how fast you did A to B to get from B to C, so you say, "Oh no, no, no! I deserve to be on shelf because we had really high velocities in point A to B." Or, uh. Uh, and, and if you apply that to the investment realm, it's really oh, we have these number of people signed on. You should sign on. And emailing that person, you know, a week, a month later, and be like, we have even more people signed on. And by the way, you're going to miss out.
2: <laughs> Scarcity value, by now.
0: Yes, yes. There is, there's definitely a very human fear of missing out piece that motivates a lot of investment decisions.
2: Yes, yeah. FOMO is a real powerful emotion when you're selling something or when you're thinking about buying something. So I think, think you're right on. Very true. Is, is there any advice you have for someone who's an NVC right now? Maybe something that you would wish you had done more of or less of during NVC?
0: I don't think I would have done anything differently, mm-hmm. honestly. I think it happened how it was supposed to. I, I will say that I am... I'm really grateful for that entire 6 month period. Our fundraising story, our first fundraising story was not easy. I mean it was very hard as it is for most first time entrepreneurs. No one knows you from Adam, you don't have a track record. You probably don't have much of a team yet behind you.
2: Is this the first 200,000 you're talking about or or a post round?
0: So the first 200,000 we we never got that. Uh, that deal ended up falling apart at the last minute, and my parents came through. They ended up mortgaging their house. and oh, incredible. Yeah, and giving us $200,000 to bridge us through to when we could raise money.
2: Did that make you very nervous?
0: Oh, yes. Oh, did yes. You,
2: did you did you almost stop them from doing
0: that? I didn't at the time. I had a lot of faith in the business. mm in retrospect, there were still very, very many places we could have gone wrong or things could have not gone our way. Yeah. And so it was incredibly risky. I, I did end up uh, repaying them for part of it. They wanted to keep all of it in uh, and still regret not keeping all of it in, but <laughs> <laughs> but I don't regret that. <laughs> it's hard to sleep at night when you know your parents' retirement hinges on your business doing well.
2: Yeah. Well, I probably just, if if you add the weight of that responsibility to the passion you already had for the business, it was almost like a, this is too important to fail, right? Like You had to succeed.
0: Yeah. There are levels of healthy stress and unhealthy stress. <laughs>
2: <laughs> where, where were you during most parts of those early days, would you say?
0: I would say there were definitely times when I was down to the unhealthy stress levels. Like Stress can be motivating to a certain point, and then it detracts. So our first fundraising round was we closed in July of 2014, uh, which was uh, shortly after the New Venture Challenge ended. And we met a number of our investors through the New Venture Challenge, but that entire process was constantly, constantly talking to potential investors. Uh, so I would talk to, and I'm not joking, probably nine investors in one day I would get off one phone call and talk to another. Uh, and everyone would say, you know, this isn't right for me, but I've got someone who it might be right for. You should contact this person. And as an entrepreneur, you say yes. And thank you. And you go on to talk to that person. And this really culminated in, I think it was probably May or June when I had talked to so many people that in Charlotte, North Carolina, two people who did not know each other walked into the grocery store who I had both spoken to. They both went to the simple Mills shelf at the same time and were looking at the product on the shelf. And Lou, who I know you know, uh, turned to the woman next to him and said, "What do you think of this brand?" And she said, I'm thinking of investing in it.
2: <laughs> no way. Yes. <laughs> you know, it could only have been better if they both grabbed the same box at the same time.
0: <laughs> it's like something out of a movie. Uh, but that gives you a, a sense for yeah. how many people I had talked to.
2: Yeah. And and for our audience, Lou was the lead of one of your angel investment groups.
0: He he is, yes. Yeah. and uh...
2: <laughs> And then a board member and, you know.
0: And at the time I'd never spoken to him. So we had a call scheduled for later that day and Lou calls me up and tells me he wants exclusive rights to take a look at this deal, uh, for a week to which I oblige. And, uh,
2: (laughs) yes, thank you. And the rest is history. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I did not know the story of the two investors in the same aisle. That's, that's incredible. (laughs) Yes. That is incredible. Okay, great. So, at this point, you have one NVC. You got that big old poster size check for thirty thousand dollars, and you've raised some additional capital. So life, life kind of seems great. But at that point, you're like, oh my gosh! Like like you're like, you're like the dog that has caught the car by the bumper in one's teeth. And what do you do next? I mean, you then have to lead this organization. Like, what were some of those leadership challenges right after then?
0: That visual is great, by the way, Uh, (laughs) because I think that's exactly how it was. I hired some of our first team members, which were kind of junior and scrappy and helping me figure things out at the same time. And so a lot of that first year after raising money was figuring things out for the first time. And we were all inexperienced.
2: So what was that first year like post NBC?
0: That first year was crazy busy. I was still working very long hours. I hired some other kind of junior scrappy team members who were like me, figuring things out as we went and doing things for the first time. And I think one of the biggest realizations was just that I needed more help. I needed people who knew what they were doing. We hired a marketing consultant who basically told me in not so many words that I didn't know at all what I was doing from a brand marketing perspective.
2: <laughs> wow! Wow! Points points for being direct, I guess, <laughs> but zero charm from that person.
0: Yes, and she was right, honestly, and it, and it was like that in all aspects of the business. We we needed uh, more experienced talent on our team, and so I started to look for senior leaders to join our organization. I, funny enough, ended up hiring our senior leaders really all of our senior leaders that year off of LinkedIn. So I personally did the searches. Each search took me probably about a full day, maybe full two days to identify the people I wanted to reach out to. And in each case, I would reach out to maybe 10, 15 people who I really liked their profiles. And we ended up hiring one of them.
2: I gotta tell you, that sounds really efficient though.
0: It's really efficient. You have to have a really clear idea about what you're looking for. So I had kind of for each role, a hypothesis of what that person's background looked like of this is what their experience looks like. Here's how many years, um, here's maybe some of the companies that they've been a part of throughout their history. So like, for example, our head of ops that we hired, uh, my theory was that there was someone who was at a consulting firm, went, went to go get their MBA, went to go work in operations at a CPG company and that that's what we needed. And so I scoured through LinkedIn for all the people who fit that description.
2: Got it. I do remember a board meeting once where we're talking about you bringing someone on and we started, and one of us threw out the idea of like search firm. You're like, no, no, I got this. I'll I'll just, I'll stay up all night on LinkedIn.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And to be honest, I still do that today for select roles.
2: (laughs) Ah, That's amazing. I think that's really, that's really amazing. Okay, so through this brilliant LinkedIn method, you put together your first kind of iteration of a post NVC team. And, and how, how did that go?
0: You know, I think it had its it had its ups and downs. I learned a lot in that year, both on the business end and also on the leadership end. On the on the business end, we revamped our packaging. Um, so we went from this green and white brand that looked Very natural and had the United Nations of claims on the front, uh, which is like gluten-free, dairy-free, soy-free, to this bright, cheery emphasis on appetite appeal on the front of the box brand, uh, which is incredibly important. As As a CPG brand, your largest marketing vehicle is the front of your box, and it's one of the cheapest marketing vehicles you have, too.
2: And the product itself, you're saying put the product on the box.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think on the leadership end, it was really learning how to manage people for the first time, especially managing experienced talent.
2: So, older than you, for example. When you say when you say experience like that's these, these folks were older who know more what in they're industry. doing. Yeah.
0: They don't need to be micromanaged. Yeah. And they don't need me to tell them how to do things. They already have a lot of great ideas on that. And because I'd been in the business at this point for probably uh, two to three years, I had a lot of opinions about the way that things were run, but they were bringing a lot to the table. And so learning how to defer to them on their areas of expertise, even when I might think it should be done differently, or and, and really treading that fine line of when do you say something? Like you can't comment on everything that you disagree with.
2: So how does one learn to do that? Because that is so important, isn't it? Is it just trial and error? Like, did you have outside mentors helping you through this?
0: I did. I I had met our still today leadership coach, uh, and she was really helpful in in helping me come to this realization that this was even an issue to begin with, mm. <laughs> much less how you solve it. And I think one of the things that I think about when I, when it comes to micromanagement or deciding when you step in is it's kind of an esoteric example or analog, but Schrodinger's cat. (sighs) (laughs) So the cat is in the box with a radioactive isotope. And every time you open the box, you exponentially increase the chances that the cat is dead. And so managing people and managing a team is kind of like you have a box that's closed, the cat's inside, there's a radioactive isotope, and you have to be really sure the cat is dead or going to die before you open that box. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe the nerds out there will get that the way I do. That is grim,
2: but I love it.
0: It's a helpful example because it's really this idea that something has to be Grossly affecting the business for you mm-hmm. to step in.
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Wow. So, Laura, your coach, who I know and I think is fantastic. How how did you even come to the point to say I should get a coach? Because that that's a big that's a big moment in a CEO's life.
0: Like many of the great things that have happened in our history, it happened a little bit by accident and luck. And a little bit by, by a momentary good insight, (laughs) a a, a moment of wisdom and also good luck. (laughs) Laura was introduced to me, uh, funny enough by the, the head of HPA at the time, who was her former business partner. And he thought that she might want an operations job with us and she was just starting her leadership consulting practice, which is huge, by the way, now works for many of the natural food companies, large food companies as well. She, I met her, uh, and talked to her about the potential of a role. And I couldn't forget, th- I couldn't shake the conversation. I kept going back to it thinking. She is really smart at that quote unquote people stuff. <laughs> 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 and. I remember sitting on an airplane and thinking, maybe I'll just try it out and see if she and I can work together and see what that looks like. And and thank goodness, thank goodness I did. I was worried about spending the money at the time, but being able to rapidly develop. But it's really important as an entrepreneur in a fast-growing organization to rapidly develop your leadership skills. Um, the company's growing very fast, which means that you need to be able to learn and grow and develop faster than you ordinarily would. Hmm. So
2: it's interesting. You said you were shy about possibly spending that money, but it sounds like it was a very high return investment because it made you more effective, which could make everyone else more effective.
0: Huge. Yeah. Huge. And
2: are, are you still working uh, today with her?
0: Yeah, we still work together today. She works with our leaders and um, and provides training and, and leadership development to our team.
2: That's amazing. So should every CEO have a coach?
0: I highly recommend it.
2: Really? That's great. That is really great. Okay. So your coach has really helped you and your team be more effective. What other obstacles besides getting the team right have have uh, presented themselves?
0: So I think over the years, the business needs different things at different times. So the demands of you as the leader when the organization is three people is different from when it's 10 people versus when it's 30 people versus when it's a hundred people.
2: These are your, your threes and your rule of threes and tens you were saying before, right?
0: Yeah, it's really a rule of threes and tens. And we're currently approaching that hundred one right now. So we're getting to learn that chapter. But what it needs from you as a leader is different. Uh, So it was really around that 10-person mark that I was starting to learn about needing to not micromanage our senior leaders. But as we grew, I think some of those lessons turned into how do our next level of leaders translate things down to the organization uh, so that everyone is aware. So around the 30 to 50 mark, we encountered this... Question of how do you ensure things are communicated in the organization? So, we'd gone from this stage where everyone's sitting in the same room and everyone knows everything, and then everyone feels like, I don't know anything anymore. And so, how do you ensure people are getting the information they need and not feeling like they're in the dark? And then, even now, it is really ensuring that people are communicating across the organization. People no longer know everyone in the company. I had a conversation a few weeks ago where it completely blew someone's mind what one team in the company does. They didn't even know what that team did.
2: Oh, really? Interesting.
0: Yes. <laughs> it's wild.
2: <laughs> you, you know, though, I, I, I've, got, I've got to give a shout out to you and your culture, the culture you've created. And I, I know that in one of the hallways, when you walk into the office, you have graphed everyone on the DISC, the DISC. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how that plays an important role in in culture and communication?
0: We well, you place a really large emphasis on communicating well with people. And so, for example, if you're going to communicate feedback, thinking through how the other person's going to receive it and, and even best receive that information while not being too soft with the communication either. It is important that you communicate feedback. Another element of that is understanding more about what other people are like and not every person is exactly like you. And so one of the ways we educate on that or one of the tools we use to educate on that is DISC. So when people join, they they take a DISC assessment to learn where they are. But then we also use that framework to do a number of our other trainings, for example, leadership. And so you start to get a really good understanding that you know you as a D. If I'm going to talk to you about something or try to sell you on something, and Chris, I think I know you're a D. Uh, <laughs> I'm a D too. You're among friends. Uh,
2: <laughs> my 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 college buddies are laughing at that quote. You know I'm a D. <laughs> Thanks, but, friend. Yeah.
0: But for you as a D, I know that what is going to convince you or what is interesting to you when I talk about selling a business idea is the results. And so I'm going to talk about results.
2: Yeah. And what's going to motivate me? What I, what I'm going to respond to well in a business conversation.
0: Exactly. And then there are other people on our team where where they're going to be most concerned about what are the impacts to other people if I'm going to launch something. And so it's really tailoring your message.
2: So, can you just round out uh, again what those letters stand for? D, I, S, C.
0: Yeah. So, D is dominance, I is influence, uh, C is compliance, and S is steadiness.
2: It it is such a fantastic way to map out your organization. I can't I can't recommend it more highly to, to all of you kind of listening today. So um, that's great.
0: And I should say, by the way, you want all those different types on your team. With all teams, you need diversity to thrive. <laughs> we actually encountered this part early on where we mapped everyone and there was no one in the steadiness category.
2: And, and did you use that then to recruit someone?
0: We, we have recruited more people in that category. If you think about it, people who value steadiness value stability, which is typically not the very early stages of a startup.
2: got it. Got it. <laughs> So, Caitlin, you guys executed so well on so many fronts. One of them that may not be obvious to our listeners is you built Simple Mills in a really capital-efficient manner. And one of the ways you did that is that instead of sticking to equity raises only, you decided at one point to raise debt to help fuel your growth. So, do you, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because it wasn't the easiest thing for a non-tech company to uh, to raise debt.
0: No, for sure. I think first and foremost, if you're going to raise debt, it has to be the right business fit. But if you are the right business fit, it can be a really nice way to avoid dilution. Yeah. Uh, so, for us, uh, a group in, in Chicago was actually starting up a new debt vehicle geared specifically at consumer products companies. And so recognizing the higher risk of their target customer, which we were their target customer, realizing the higher risk profile of those businesses because they were largely equity-backed, high growth, they had higher interest rates but they could lend on a much larger part of your business so instead of just for example receivables they could lend on inventory or raw material and so you could have greater availability uh, for us this was this was a great solution because we had a large amount of those things and also i will i will tout our our finance team for a second uh, they're phenomenal, and they've done a great job of forecasting over the years.
2: Shout out to Amy!
0: Yes, shout out to Amy. And so we had a fair amount of confidence in our forecast, and so it takes both having the things that you can lend against that are worth something, and at the same time having a good amount of confidence in it because you're going to have to sign up for uh, for covenants to say this is what we as a business are going to do, and if you violate those covenants, there are repercussions for them. Unlike in a equity deal or most equity deals.
2: Right. And and look, just to give you full credit, I mean, we kind of skipped past the part where you had gotten turned down by bank after bank after bank. I mean, I remember going up and down LaSalle with you to a number of banks and people saying, wait, I'm sorry, are you food tech? And you're like, no, no, just, just food.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah. With any of these things, there's a lot of no's before you get a yes.
2: Right, right. so finding finding the right capital provider uh, who has the right fit for your business is like extremely, extremely important. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, the other thing that I just want everybody to be aware of is that Caitlin runs an incredibly efficient board meeting. And one of the I, I guess pro tip for entrepreneurs out there, Caitlin, what what's what's the best way to to kind of get what you need out of of every board meeting?
0: Yeah, I think there's a there's a few different things. The first, I mean, we we were kind of inclined to put together well organized board meetings because a lot of us were ex consultants, <laughs> which teach you how to do really nice decks. But I, with any with any meeting, knowing what you want to get out of it is really important, and. Also thinking about the relationship that a management team has with, with the board. Uh, and so the way that we have historically thought about it is that our job as a leadership team is to present a perspective and to focus the board's attention on places where we have questions or where we really welcome and need discussion. And so where those things are, we, we try to really call it out in the deck and otherwise, say this is what we intend on doing. If we have a really solid perspective, because that can be really helpful to the board.
2: Yeah, and and just to give people a visual, and I, I will I, I use your board decks as the gold standard and just examples for other boards that I'm on. Is that you know Caitlin and the team would put together a page or two of you know great data great analysis. And at the bottom of that would be a very specific question. And Caitlin would create the space for board members to make contributions to that question. And uh, I think the average board deck might have had, you know, four or five questions. And we deem the meeting a success if you had helpful input on those four or five. And you always did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I think makes for a successful board meeting is making sure that people aren't surprised in a meeting. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And that's important across the board. I think when I first started running a company, I didn't have an appreciation for the importance of alignment. But if there are going to be things that rock the boat, whether with your board or with someone on your team, it's best to talk to them ahead of time and maybe not in a large format situation. Right.
2: Yeah, and and I guess just to respond to that, like you know, if 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 someone buries, say, you know, bad news in the back of a board deck, not only are they surprised, but they're like, wait a second, I have to go back and read the whole rest of the board deck to make sure I didn't miss any other little bombs that are, that are hanging out in there. So I, I I think you're so right about trying to build that rapport with your board. That's great. It's 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 a great point. So, Caitlin, you are one of the strongest leaders that I know, and I I mean that earnestly. So, so I'm wondering, what what do you attribute that to?
0: Multiple things. I would say, first, a willingness to learn and listen. I do not believe that people are born leaders. I think it's a terrible fallacy. I remember looking around in high school and thinking that the loudest person in the room was a natural-born leader And that's absolutely not the case. Good leadership is learned. It's a learned skill. I would also attribute it to feedback over the years. All the people who have been willing to give me feedback and tell me harsh truths so that I can modify and adapt.
2: That's great. And I guess knowing when to seek counsel for yourself in this lesson you've shared with us about getting a coach and using a coach, I think is also brilliant, so.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of, I think, vulnerability that goes into, into good leadership. It's recognizing when you're wrong, being willing to admit when you're wrong, being willing to learn and think that you don't know everything.
2: So great, such such, such great wisdom there. So why don't we talk a little bit about what's next for Simple Mills? Do you want to tell us a little bit kind of like where you guys have reached just to kind of ground us in maybe some current stats and then tell us what's what's next?
0: Yeah, so today we are the largest natural baking mix brand, the largest natural cracker brand, and the third largest natural cookie brand. Wow. We are in, I think, around 27,000 stores. Oof. Wow! So everything from Whole Foods to Walmart to Costco to uh, Target. Target, Kroger, you name it. And we have about 75 team members.
2: 75. That's amazing. Yes. So what is next for you guys? I mean, having reached these incredible levels.
0: I have always thought that our purpose in this space is to help Elevate the future of food and the future of what people are eating. It brings me so much joy today to see how different these categories are than when I started the business. When I started this company, sugar was the number one ingredient in most baking mixes, which is kind of crazy to think today. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like you just can't even imagine that today, but it was less than 10 years ago. Yeah. And so I love how much we have been able to help influence that conversation. And I think that there is a really exciting next chapter of that as well. So in addition to all the things that we want to continue to do as a business, like expanding our distribution and growing our product lines, which are which are huge things as well, we are also thinking about how we influence the way that food is grown as well. And so not only is there this huge opportunity for food to positively impact people's bodies, but that fits really hand in hand with how food impacts our planet. And the way that we grow our food has the opportunity to help sequester carbon. It has the opportunity to improve communities, to improve soil health, and improve the nutrition and taste of our food.
2: This would all be under the heading of regenerative agriculture.
0: That's exactly right. So over the past year, as an example, we have partnered with several farmers across the Midwest to take over these conventional fields that have grown uh, conventional crops, changing those fields from the top four crops, which to give you an idea, the top four crops account for more than half of our farmland.
2: Hmm. Wow.
0: So to grow different things in those fields and to employ regenerative agriculture principles in their growing techniques. So we provide them financial incentives, we provide them crop purchase guarantees to make it easier for farmers to switch over the way that they're growing and the practices that they're using, because that can be a costly endeavor for them.
2: Wow. So you're you're working with your suppliers, you're going up the supply chain, and are are you giving them some sort of like minimum guarantees on buying so that they have the confidence to do that?
0: exactly and also sharing that risk with them so that you know if the crop doesn't turn out exactly like we hoped then they're not completely out
2: great wow okay that sounds like like that could have i mean the larger that you grow you can have a real impact on that yes do do you think you're influencing others other companies by doing this or is there an opportunity to do that
0: yeah i think that part of the opportunity here is not just helping these farmers, but it's also changing the expectations of what people get from their food. Of uh, Your food can be healthy for you. It can be something that nourishes your body. And it can also be something that positively impacts the planet, which is Great. pretty cool.
2: Awesome. Caitlin, so I really miss being in the boardroom with you. I and, miss it
0: too, Chris, by the way.
2: Oh, thank <laughs> you. But wh- one of the things that was just so amazing is that y- you literally got such superstars, in the food sector to join your board at such an early stage for Simple Mills. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the folks that you had as independent board members, how you recruited them?
0: Absolutely. I, I don't think there's any one way to recruit a board member. I do think it's really important you think about what your company needs at the time. And what information you're hungry for that, that you don't have access to otherwise, uh, what sort of expertise you're looking for, and, and using that to look for for board members. Uh, for us, for for our independent board members, I've met them a bunch of different ways, through my network, through other board members, through people that I worked with at prior jobs. One of them I met on the floor at a trade show. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Another one I actually met through a project called Women on Boards Project mm, uh, that great. focuses on getting more women and people of color onto boards.
2: Fantastic,
0: yeah. So there's a lot of different ways and even resources out there,
2: yeah. and And when you were thinking about the business needs, how how did you go about that? Did you think about what different departments or what different areas of the business you wanted to supplement?
0: I think it really depends on where your blind spots are. So early on, we didn't know what the what kind of the leap looked like from being this company in 30 stores to one that's in 27,000. And so we brought someone onto our board who is the former CEO of uh, of Happy Family and had seen this full jump before. Right. Today, we have someone on our board who really focuses on uh, driving investments in regenerative agriculture ah, uh, so that she can provide insights. And so it's, it, it really depends on what your needs are.
2: Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So, Caitlin, do you have any parting advice for founders or potential founders who are listening?
0: I would say stay hungry, keep listening, keep listening to that feedback, and keep adapting.
2: Great. Great. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us for this special podcast commemorating the 25th anniversary of NVC. It was such an honor for me to be a small part of your journey at Simple Mills, and I miss being in the boardroom with you. So I wish you well and and good luck to everyone at Simple Mills.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: All right, that is it for this episode. If you could do me a huge favor really quick, please go to your favorite podcasting app, often Apple Podcasts, and rate and review our show. This gets the show recommended to more folks, and it also helps us get bigger and better guests for you to listen to. Take care.